0: All right, if you got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, where we pick back up, and particularly tonight, just because we kind of ended where we did last week there at the end of verse 17, as I mentioned on Sunday morning, I just want to really focus in on the remainder of chapter 2 as it covers for us really the institution of marriage. And uh, let me say, as, as a preface even to tonight's study, uh, my intention is not to be politically uh, correct, but to be scripturally accurate. Uh, So uh, I am excited to look at God's design and God's intention, the origin of marriage as we find it in the scriptures, and quite an interesting thing to consider as well, how marriage really is the only institution uh, that comes to us from the other side of the fall. Uh, And and that's insightful to me, that of the many institutions that we have, you know, we have the institution of government and, and many other things that God instituted, but the one thing that was instituted that comes to us from the other side of the fall is marriage, which I think just all the more reminds us of the sacredness of it of the fact that it is something that uh, is extremely honorable. Hebrews 13 tells us marriage is honorable among all, but yet adulterers and fornicators, God will judge, that that God sees the marriage relationship as something sacred. Uh, Jesus himself, remember, even when he began to speak about marriage, uh, as they debated with him, uh, he went all the way back, reaching back into the book of Genesis, and said, but listen, listen, listen. From the beginning... This is how it was. And he went all the way back prior to the time of the fall. Granted, divorce had entered in and problems and human selfishness and all these things and distortions as we have even in today's culture of what marriage is really supposed to be. And Jesus says, but wait, but from the beginning, don't you remember God created them male and female and talked about Genesis 1 as we looked at last time together uh, there in the end of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where God created man and woman, it says, and, and he made them male and female, purposeful gender distinctions to then of course bring them together as we'll see the more lengthy in-depth description of tonight here in the end of chapter 2 and and Jesus said look what God therefore has joined let not man separate and how God sees that sacredness and that uh, tremendous importance upon the origin of the marriage relationship even to this uh, very day now remember as we look at this together just by way of kind of background Chapter 2, as I said, kind of it, it zooms the lens back in. We sort of got the broad panoramic view of creation. We read that God created them male and female, commanded man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, and then it's almost as if the Spirit of God sort of zooms in the lens, and he comes back now in chapter 2, and as we began to see last time, and he starts to fill in some more specific details about the creation of man. And then, of course, as we'll see tonight... Uh, how God not only created male, but God, how also God created female, and then of course brought them together, instituting marriage as a husband and wife. So we're looking now at those details, but we left off, remember, God had created man, he had created Adam, and he placed Adam in this paradise garden environment. We're told that what God set Adam into was a beautiful place. It was a pleasant atmosphere. Remember there were gorgeous trees that were beautiful behold, into the sight. There were rivers there. Uh, there was gold and precious stones. It had all types of wonderful food to partake of. Uh, God gave to Adam, remember something productive to do. He put him and told him tend the garden and to keep it. So Adam had a responsibility. He had something to attend to every day. He had fulfillment. And then to add on top of that wonderful satisfaction and paradise environment, he even had the very presence of God with him right there, walking among him and with him. Uh, So Adam had a tremendous experience, but yet we read here again by God's estimation, chapter 2, verse 18, that the Lord God said regarding Adam in that existence still, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, many times throughout the creation days, we read that God would say, and it was good, and it was good. And now here's the first time we read God saying here, by evaluation, it is not good. The idea is is something is is incomplete not necessarily bad or evil but something is incomplete now remember at the end of chapter 1 it tells us in chapter 1 verse 31 that god saw everything he had made and indeed it was very good now remember that is a statement god made after he created man and woman and joined them together as husband and wife then god said now that's very good Not only have I created man and put him into this creation, but I've also given him a helper comparable, as we'll see the details of how God did that tonight. But prior to the time when God did that, we see here in chapter 2, verse 18, God makes an evaluation, or you could say God makes an analysis first, and then he, after making that evaluation, he then creates the way in which he's going to solve that problem. So God makes his evaluation and he says this is something that needs to be addressed. And then God takes the responsibility to provide the solution for how to address that. The beginning of verse 18, basically God is giving his evaluation as he looked upon man whom he created in his perfection. Yet God says of Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, That's very important to see, that God saw incompleteness in Adam's life. That as God looked at man, independent of any other human relationship, only him and God, God saw that incompleteness and said, it is not good for man to live in that capacity whereby he would live independently or he would be alone. In other words, he would not do as well if he continually lived in a isolated uh, sort of environment separate from other human companionship, God realized that without a partner and without a life companion and assistant, that Adam would not live as fulfilled as he possibly could, that he would not experience to the fullest extent certain dynamics of his life, he would be incomplete in certain areas, and I am naive enough to believe that to this day, still, in some senses, as God looks at our lives, I know when God looked at my life, that means there's a certain point as God looked at my life, and even after I was saved and born again, that God looked at me, and in his evaluation, and I understand now in hindsight, he said, you know, it would not be good for him to be alone. <laughs> that, just, that just would not be good. Because I know ultimately where he, that will lead him, where I know many of the deficiencies. And, and, and God understood that there would be certain dynamics that would be missing from my life apart from a partner. That God knew that there were certain areas where I needed assistance, where I needed fulfillment, where I needed uh, to be more complete. And that I would be better off with companionship and partnership. And and so God looks at Adam and he says, something's lacking. It's not good for him to be alone. There's something that's a need in his life. Someone to come alongside of him is necessary. And the reason why is because he would then be able to further achieve to a higher level the things that God intended for him. Did he have something to do? Absolutely. Did he have a relationship with God? Absolutely. Did he have a perfect environment? Most certainly. But yet God said, but there's another level, another dimension that he can arrive to if I bring a companion into his life, that he would experience it to a greater capacity. And in most cases, again... It is God's design and God's ideal that a person would live out life, not alone, but would live out their life with a companion, with a spouse. Now, that that does not mean that singleness, in some senses, is wrong or sinful. My point simply is this, is a single life is the exception, it's not the rule the rule by god's design the way he created us and keep in mind this is prior to sin entering the world all these things in a most perfect environment with the most perfect man we're going to see adam naming the animals adam naming the animals afterward adam was brilliant so this guy was lacking nothing but god's origin and ideal is that a human being in this life Is not good to be alone, that to them having a life companion, a partner, it allows them to be a more complete and a more fulfilled person. Now, that just reminds us simply that the institution of marriage was God's idea, and it's God's ideal for the original design for a person to ultimately have a spouse to complete them. Again, does the Bible teach us that there is a gift of celibacy or singleness? Yes, there does, and that's a spiritual gift, but you better make sure. That you have that spiritual gift. There's nothing more spiritual about being single and there's nothing more spiritual about being married. The important thing is to understand God's original design and to recognize if God has given you a unique gift, an exception, it's not the rule. The rule is is that by and large most people are intended not to be alone. They're intended to be married even in the most perfect of circumstances as we see here. But there is the exception where someone could have that gift. So God says, not good that man should be alone. And then notice God himself takes the initiative then to resolve the problem. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now take note of this. I think there's something really beautiful to see here that Adam's wife, was already in God's mind before she ever ended up in Adam's arms. Adam's wife was already in God's mind before she ever ended up in Adam's arms. God said, it's not good for that guy to be alone. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm his God. I created him. I designed him. I know what he needs in the way he's uniquely created. Therefore, I will make a helper comparable him, So it was God's idea to supply a spouse. It was God's idea to create an assistant, a life partner to come alongside of him. And important to remember that, especially tonight if you're still in a status of being single, to realize, listen, you have nothing to worry about. God already has in his mind exactly who you're supposed to be married to. God already has in his mind exactly who he's intended and designed and has created and began knitting them together in their mother's womb, knowing exactly how he knit you together in your mother's womb. So you can relax and realize that before that person ever ends up or ends up, ended up in your arms, they were already in God's mind. God's taking care of the problem. And that allows us a sense of peace and rest where we don't have to feel like we have to go out hunting and chasing. And and Adam didn't have to go running and climbing and looking around in the bushes. God was already preparing something. God had something in his mind. God says, I'm going to make Taking initiative, I'm going to make a helper, he says, comparable to him. So God uniquely creates a spouse for Adam in the same way God uniquely creates a spouse for everyone else. The Bible tells us in Malachi that God changes not. God hasn't changed. He wouldn't do something different for you even if he was going to do such a thing for Adam. God hasn't changed at all. He hasn't changed the rules and therefore we can know God's custom designing who we're to be with. And notice what he was making. He says, I will make him a helper comparable to to him, and the Hebrew there literally indicates a completer, or, or a, a a corresponding assistant, a, a corresponding partner of the idea, somebody who supplies what the other lacks. Uh, you know, you know, you say north, she says south, and that's by design. You say McDonald's, she says no Olive Garden. You know, and that depends on who likes to spend more money. If you understand what I'm saying, it, but that's by design. God says, I'm going to create a helper comparable, somebody that's comparable to you, a co-respondent, not someone who's a ditto copy of you, someone who's a co-respondent who will match together. If you can see the visual idea, you know, of, that will fill in the gaps and where strengths and weaknesses, corresponding strengths and weaknesses will merge together to make a stronger unit. To make a more complete individual where two actually become one flesh, but different by design. Again, she is going to be different, God says, by design. Not inferior, just different. Again, we said last time, God created them male and female. God purposely made gender distinctions. Equality is the reality. It has nothing to do with this issue. Oh, inferiority. No, not inferior, just different different by design. God created men the way he created men and God created females the way he created females with the intention of bringing them together to be corresponding partners in a relationship that there might be mutual fulfillment and that both of them might become more complete individuals. But here in God's original design, notice God says here, I'm going to make a helper comparable, someone uniquely different, someone purposefully who has different personality traits, who has different viewpoints, who has different perspectives in some capacities, so that they would be a comparable, corresponding partner to you to make you most fulfilled and to make you most fruitful in the way that you would live out your life. Now, I point that out to say this. What is one of the things that we hear very often when people can't just get along in their marriage relationships? I'm not talking about you know, something grievous like infidelity or or adultery. I, I'm just talking about two people who just are genuinely trying to, to argue the fact we just do not get along. And they say, here's the term I often hear and you often hear, and maybe you've said it. We just have irreconcilable differences. Well, I understand that. That was by design. Do you see it? It's such a contradictory point. We have irreconcilable difference. Correct. You're supposed to have irreconcilable differences. You weren't supposed to be ditto copies. You're supposed to be corresponding partners who you have extremes over here and she has extremes over there. And therefore, as you come together, you balance each other out. My wife and I are polar opposites. Other than both loving Jesus and having children, we have nothing in common. Nothing. Sincerely. And we like each other, too. I guess I should say that. I'm, tra- I'm attracted anyway still. I hope she is. But you know, other than that, we are vastly different. But we are corresponding partners. And, and because of that, over 18 years of marriage, what begins to happen? Where I have extremes, and we all have extremes in our personalities, right? Where I have extremes... And she has extremes or we come together and like iron sharpening iron and we rub against each other. And yes, it creates sparks. Rub two pieces of iron together. See what happens. When we dwell together, what's happened is my extremes have come more to the middle and her extremes have come more to the middle. We've made each other more well-rounded individuals. We've balanced each other out. We've assisted each other, whether it was through friction or or challenges. It's a recognition, hey – I need to not try and change you. I need to appreciate your differences. I need to value the fact that God made you the way he made you, but he made you purposefully different from me so that we would be correct for one another. And here God says of Adam, he says, it's not good that he be alone. In other words, God saw there was a need in the man's life. God saw a deficiency there. And God saw that there were certain things that were lacking and therefore God created the woman to fulfill those needs. He created the woman to come alongside, to be a corresponding assistant, to be a completer to him, to supply the areas where he lacked as a man. And take special notice, a helper comparable. Listen, and hear my heart, ladies. It does not say a competer, a completer. Okay, God's design is not for you to be competing with your husband. And sometimes that starts to happen. God's design is for you to complete your husband. And if you're always trying to compete with him, and always jockeying and wrestling, and and it always becomes a competitive thing, whether you're conscious of doing it or not, you're you're directly working against God's design. God's intention was to bring you along to complete him, to fulfill what God's intended for him to fulfill on, on behalf of God's leading for the family. And when you begin to compete against him, all you do is create friction in the marriage and you begin in a self-destructive way to tear your own household down. It doesn't say that she was supposed to be a competitor. It doesn't say that she was supposed to control him. And sometimes that begins to happen. You know, I, and, and, and that's not God's plan. It doesn't say that she was to control him. It doesn't say she was to contradict him, to counteract him. None of those C words. But these are the things when they begin to happen in a marriage that cause a marriage to begin to have tension and friction. Where things get out of design and whether it's, it's consciously being done or not, is, is a wife can begin to become controlling over her husband. A wife can begin to be contradictory and always challenging and resisting and competing against. And God says, no, 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 you're missing the whole picture. Again, what's God's original design? God's original design prior to sin, it wasn't good. Yes, he needs help. That's why God made you. It's not good that man should be alone. So God says, I'm going to make him, notice, a helper comparable or corresponding to him. Now, the problem is this. Again, we look at that and we go, helper? I don't need a helper. That sounds inferior. A helper? We am not so as a helper. And see, and, and we get this hostile mindset. You know, let me give an illustration to you to, to show you how we have a wrong perspective when we think the idea of a helper is somehow inferior. My assistant pastor, for all the years that I was there, in York, Pennsylvania, probably one of my best friends, and was just phenomenal. I couldn't have asked. For a better right hand man and a better assistant pastor. Many times when I described our relationship in ministry, I used to say it was like a marriage because he was vastly different from me. He was completely different from who I was, the way God wired me, my style, my personality traits. We were just completely, distinctly different from one another. But yet we had a couple things in common. We both loved Jesus. We felt called to be together in ministry. We had a bond and a kinship for one another. But listen, this guy, incredibly intelligent. I graduated high school. He was a mechanical engineer. Bright, intelligent, organized, administrative, beyond handy, which I am not. I mean, this guy was everything I'm not and had so many gifts. He was way more talented than me way more intelligent to me, and and yet he was my helper. He was somebody that God brought alongside to help fulfill what God had called me to do. Nobody would ever look at Tim and consider Tim inferior. He was the furthest thing from inferior in comparison to me. But yet he was my helper. But it had nothing to do with inferiority, it just had to do with roles. It had to do with what God put together as a good complement so that together we could achieve things to a greater level. And because of that, understand, ladies, your role is to complement your husband, is to complement him, is to come alongside as a helper and to enable him to assist him with your gifts and your support and the things that you contribute to complete and fulfill what God's intended to design with. God gave Adam a responsibility, remember, in the prior verses, to tend the garden and to keep it. God had given Adam something to do, and then God created Eve and said, you know what, but he needs help fulfilling what I've asked him to do. And and I will go so far as to say this, and, and, and you're free to disagree. I personally believe that a wife will find her greatest personal fulfillment when she recognizes the value of coming alongside of her husband and realizing what God has called him to do and discovering how can I best support and assist him in fulfilling what God is directing and guiding him to do. And when a wife can understand the value of, I don't need to go out and compete and try and do my thing while you're out trying to do your thing because I want to you know, accomplish these kind of goals too. And, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there is something incredibly fulfilling when a wife recognizes, you know what, What has God intended for my husband to do? Where is God leading my husband? What is God trying to accomplish through my husband? And how can I come alongside of him and support him and help him fulfill what God is directing him to do? And I tell you, I dare you to see if you do not find tremendous internal fulfillment by recognizing that. You know there there is a measure of truth to behind you know every great man is is a, a wonderful woman there's a tremendous truth to that you know I, many times before i I've recognized the reality that when I look at my wife and i's relationship it it's like I'm the tree and she's the root system underneath, and I may be the one on the surface that everybody sees and has the branches extended and and so on and so forth, but there's a tremendously deep root system that's there underneath, supporting everything that happens to the tree and keeps the tree from falling over and keeps the tree fruitful and so on and so forth. And again, the same thing, but just two different parts, two different roles, two different functions. And here in God's original design, God says, I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. And then we begin to get description of how God does that. Verse 19 says, so out of the ground, it says the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name, it says. So Adam, verse 20, gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So look with me, if you would, what God does here. God takes Adam now through a process... In his life there in the garden, before he creates them, he takes him through a process whereby he gives Adam the awareness of his need for a female companion. See, Adam, like most men, he was a blockhead. He was intelligent, but he was probably clueless like most guys. So here's Adam, and here's God saying, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make a helper comparable to you. You need help. He's going, what? what are you talking about, God? I mean, God, we got the best fruit. We've got rivers to fish in. It's you and I hanging out. All the animals. What, what do you mean? I'm, what do you mean? I need help. What am I lacking? What am I missing? And he's not. So, what does God do? God says, "I need to take this guy through a process to show him the deep need in his life, and then awake him awaken aware of the need for a female companion in partnership, and awaken that desire within him for a spouse." So, what does God do? Interestingly, it tells us here in these verses. That God begins to bring all the animals before Adam, and Adam begins to name all the animals. It shows you how incredibly brilliant. Remember, you know Adam was a genius. Many times we think back on ancient people in history, and we we think of some caveman, you know, barbaric, dragging the woman by the hair and bark Adam was brilliant. Adam's brain wasn't cursed with sin. Adam was the most brilliant individual that ever lived, created in the image of God, using every part of his brain the way God intended him to before other things started destroying it in the way that we do today with the curse of sin. And here's Adam, and he's beginning to name the animals. And no doubt, as you can just envision in your mind, consider what begins to happen. As the animals start to come to Adam, and he's looking at them and he's naming them, he's also picking up on the reality, Mr. Elephant, Mrs. Elephant. Mr. Bear, Mrs. Bear, Mr. Tiger, Mrs. Tiger, and and all oh, oh and but there's nobody like me. I mean that orangutan is oh, nah, and, and he's recognizing all of a sudden this male female distinction partnership designed for procreation, designed for their own fulfillment and assistance. And all of a sudden, Adam's recognizing because it says, "Look at the end of verse." 20 there says, but for Adam, there was not found a comparable helper. In other words, he came to the conclusion through this animal naming process, wait a minute, I, I'm getting the picture now. None of these fit with me. None of these would be a helper for me. None of these would be a comparable corresponding partner to fulfill me in the needs that I have or to assist me as a life partner for the duration of my time on this earth. So what does God do? He takes him through a process to show him the awareness of his need for a female companion. He awakens in Adam a desire for a spouse to be united with someone of the opposite sex. And that's exactly what God does really still to this day in each and every one of us. It may not be through the same process, but there comes a a process whereby just through... Chemicals and hormones being released in our bodies as God takes us through puberty and these kind of things where all of a sudden there begins to be a desire. An attraction towards the opposite sex at a certain age or or God begins to give us at a certain point in time an interest in wanting to be married someday and beginning to desire a spouse and we start to think about it and, and we maybe even perhaps for a time you went through a season where you were very content but then God begins to awaken within you through a process of events in your life a desire to want to be married and you start to have a desire for a husband or a desire for a wife and God's the one awakening that within you. And then once God awakens that within you, notice verse 21 says God allows him to sense that and then it says, and the Lord God then caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And the Lord took one of his ribs, and Hebrew commentators think that may not per se be as accurate referring to a rib the way we would think of as much as a a part of his side, as much as a, a rib bone per se itself. The Lord took something, again, what does that refer to? Something of his side, it's translated ribs here in the English, and then closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man— he made into a woman. So here we see God now designing a companion, creating this help me, this life partner for Adam. And interesting how God designs. It says that God takes her from the man and fashions her. Interesting that God fashions her from, from Adam's side. You know, Matthew Henry, the old Bible commentator, used to say it's very insightful the fact that God didn't take Eve from you know Adam's head whereby she would rule over him and he didn't take and make Eve from his foot whereby he would walk over her and trample her like a dictator but he created Eve from Adam's side the place closest to his heart whereby she might be in a close and intimate place under his arm to be cared for to be protected, to walk closely together with. And here God now designs and begins to fashion Eve Making her, particularly for Adam, it says verse 22, that the Lord made, from that side of Adam, made a woman. And again, how wonderful to consider the reality that not only does God know exactly the need that's in our life, but God particularly and specifically makes the exact person to be the spouse that's right for us. You know, I look at that now in hindsight and I see that perfectly. I'll tell my wife that all the time. I say, you know, I, I, it's so evident to me that God handcrafted you for me. And you know what? You can take confidence if you're still single. That's exactly what God will do for you. God, God will knit together in the womb of, of someone or already has, and then we'll begin to fashion them and shape them and take them through a series of events, two separate, in, you know, independent, distinct lives, and yet God makes us, specifically our personality traits, I believe you know, our physical features, because he knows exactly what you like. He knows what your preferences are. He understands your personality. He understands what things you find attractive, what things you find unattractive, and to think that God, in his tremendous love, again, because Eve was a gift. She was a gift from God to Adam. And the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. And, and if you're single, you need to recognize, and we need to teach our kids, look, I understand God's aroused something in you. I understand you want to be with someone of the opposite sex. That's natural, son. That's natural, dear. That's normal. We don't want to squelch that and diminish that. However, the Bible teaches that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we should abstain from sexual immorality and possess our vessel with sanctification and honor because, listen, God is designing someone specifically for you. He's making someone for you. Someone who exactly will fit you perfectly, but you've got to wait for him and discover him. And you don't want to go out through trial and error and trial and error and trial and error upon error upon error upon error upon error trying to create for yourself or design for yourself or take someone and say, well, this person looks close, so I'll make them then into the rest of what I need them to be to be my husband or wife. Listen, you don't want to do that. But to recognize that God creates someone specifically, and how wonderful, and I think that is critical. I tell young people this when I sit down and do premarital counseling. I say, you know, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that this is exactly who God made for you? Because if you don't, you better not marry them. Because if they don't fit, you're going to have lots of challenges and lots of difficulties. You better really firmly believe in your heart, this is somebody that I know, I can tell God made this person for me. Because see, that adds a whole other dimension to the value and the appreciation you put upon your marriage. Because you realize this is somebody God saw my need and as I waited in self-control, God created this person for me and not only does he design them and create them, but look verse 22, it says, and then he brought her to the man. God creates the desire God designs the partner and then God delivers the partner into your life at exactly the right time. It says that God made the woman and then he brought her to the man. Again, Adam's not out on the hunt here. God brought her to the man. In fact, what was Adam doing? Well, it tells us in the prior verses that as God was making his wife and preparing to bring his wife to him, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon him. And really that honestly, that should be our prayer in the time prior to our marriage commitment. And that should be our prayer for our young people, for our children, for our singles. You know what, Lord? I know they have a desire. Just put them into a deep sleep while you finish making and fashioning who you have for them and just put all put them into just put them into a coma, God. You know? Because you know how it is. If that's not the case. You know you see them salivating and panning, and even around the church they come, you know, and you can you can see guys and gals doing this in the church, you know and, and and they're sal and they're and they're running off to every singles club and this and that because they're on the hunt. Listen, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. God knows the need. God's specifically working on your unique need, and God will, at the right time, in the right way, bring that person into your life. And you can do exactly what Adam was doing. In a sense, you can just put that thing on sleep mode and just rest. That's faith. Just rest. Lord, I'm going to rest and trust that you're making somebody for me. You know my need. And you will bring her to me in your timing. You will bring him to me in your timing. You'll bring them into my path and you will introduce them to me. And then I will be able to recognize, hey, yep, this is exactly what God intended. And then you can embrace it wholeheartedly. You know, there's nothing more wonderful than to be able to look at the person that you're married to and to know this is who God created for me and God brought you into my life. There's nothing more wonderful than that. To have that assurance and to live out your married life going, you know what? Why would I ever contradict We're trying to diminish something that God did that was divine. God created you for me, I can tell, and God brought you to me. God brought you into my life. There's something so solid and solidifying about that. And see, when you recognize that, then you understand what Jesus means when he says, look, what God has joined. Let not man separate. God's joined this. God's did this. And how wonderful if you can look at your spouse and say, God brought that person into my life. I know he did. And God put them into my path. And here, how wonderful to see that God was doing that very thing as God brought her to the man. Again, just such a great thing to be able to know and to have confidence in. And that we need to teach our singles. We need to teach our young people. To be able to realize that God will do that. That's God's design. That's God's plan. So God brings her to the man. And verse 23, look at Adam's response. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones... And flesh of my flesh, so adam Adam realized he realized what God did this is adam 's response now he recognizing after seeing the animals whoa, 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 this, yes, this is what i 've been waiting for now, this is bone of my bones and this is flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, or maybe if she was that attractive as Eve, whoa, man, and that's maybe where we got woman from, I don't know, but he said she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha, the Hebrew is. He doesn't use the term for Adam from man prior here. He uses the term for husband and wife here in in the Hebrew. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. There was something that Adam realized that the sacredness of the oneness, of the unity that God intended, that God formed her out of him and he formed her for him. And he says she shall be called Isha, or woman, because she was taken out of man, out of Ish. God formed her that God might bring them back together in his complete openness. And when you look at the Hebrew there in verse 23, that Adam says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. When you you look at the language there, the Hebrew clearly indicates exhilaration. It clearly indicates that he's very enthusiastic in his response here. That as he saw Eve... He was really excited, no doubt. If the best thing he saw before that was an orangutan or a giraffe, you can, un- you can understand how he realized, wow, now this is what I've been waiting for. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that is exactly what I've been looking for. So indicating to me, too, that, that there was a clear attraction. Now, I don't say she was just the most beautiful woman on the earth because she was the only woman on the earth, but, I mean, quite literally she was. I'm sure she was the most beautiful woman on the earth the most beautiful woman in the world. But you know what? I think, as a husband, your wife should be the most beautiful woman in your world. And if you realize God's created her for you, she should be the most beautiful woman in your world. And it shows me, too, from my look at the original design in in Scripture of God's origin of marriage, there was a clear attraction there. Adam was enthused and excited about what he saw. As God presented Eve to him, which shows me that there is a component of physical attraction that is by design. I don't like this idea that some Christians, in their super spirituality, try and convey sometimes. Of well, yeah, I just you know she really loves Jesus, or he really loves Jesus. I mean, I'm not really physically attracted to them. You know, quite honestly, I'm not really attracted at all. But they're a great friend, and they really love the Lord, and we're just such good friends. Well, listen, God's going to say marriage is reflected upon one flesh. It refers to the physical consummating of marriage. There is nothing unspiritual about being physically attracted and exhilarated by the appearance of your spouse. There's lots of other people out there. I would hope you're very physically attracted to your spouse. I would hope that before you enter into a lifelong commitment, you would have an exhilaration and attraction. That's part of God's design. That's a sacred and a normal thing. So Adam here meets what God provides for him, and now verse 24 and 25, notice we basically get the first marriage ceremony. And notice who's conducting the marriage ceremony. It's God, right? There's no justice of the peace there. There's no pastor or priest officiating the event. The very first marriage ceremony, who's, who's officiating, who's conducting it and joining husband and wife? God. God. And I sure hope, even though I have the privilege to officiate marriage ceremonies as an instrument of the Lord and as a steward of the Lord, I still hope that God is the one that's superintending over marriages, that God is the one that's officiating marriages, and that we recognize, look, and I've said this a couple times, I'm not putting you together. God's putting you together. And we need to realize that sacred reality. We're not just signing a piece of paper. Oh, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of paper. Well, let me tell you something. If if marriage to you is just a piece of paper before you get married, it's going to be just a piece of paper after you get married. And if we have that mindset, oh, it's just a piece of paper. What's what's the big deal or, or you know. No, it is so much more than that. It is God putting together a divine union of a man and a woman that he intended for one another. To be together by design and bringing them together, letting them meet and account on one another, and then joining them together in matrimony in a lifelong monogamous relationship till death do them part. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So notice a couple of things that we see really, call it what you will, the first marital vows, God's instruction, the, the first message as God presided over the first marriage relationship. Here is the institution of marriage. Here's the first time that we find a man shall leave his father and be joined to his wife. There's the first indication and description of marriage, husband and wife. And we notice a couple of things. First of all, notice in marriage, God's design is independence. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother in order to be joined to his wife. One very, very essential and important aspect of the marriage relationship is independence for that husband and wife. It doesn't matter if they're 18, if they're 28, if they're 58. Independence. The idea is severance is leaving the past family unit. Certainly if it's it's, it's younger folks and they're still living at home or they're still dependent upon their parents, it's a time to leave father and mother to establish independence to sever their prior family relationship and existence in the environment it was in. Again, the Bible says honor your father and mother. I'm not saying that there's, you need to stop a relationship, but it is a time where in order to properly enter into the dependence on one another, which is the next thing he says, join together, you can't have adequate dependence on one another as a husband and wife unless you have independence from your parents in the way that God intended to. So the first thing that God asked for, and again, remember, Adam and Eve didn't have parents. So this was written for us and future generations. Adam and Eve didn't have anybody to leave. They were only two people on the planet. God was writing this for marriages throughout human history to depart, to forsake those prior relationships. And, and that's something, listen, that is something that both the participants in marriage, the children, And the parents, if you're a parent and your child is getting married, must work at cooperatively together. If you're a parent and your child is getting married or your child is married, the best gift that you can give to them in their marriage is keep pushing them back to their spouse. You don't let them come back home. You don't let them run back to mama and run back to daddy and complain about this. and, 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 and No, you, look, you need to stay committed to what you committed to. And you need to cut the apron strings on them. And you need to force them back into that relationship. That's the best gift that you can give them. To keep forcing them back into that relationship and teaching them how to honor that commitment and not to continue to try and come back. They need that independence. You need to forcefully help them to, as much as possible, circumstantially, get out of the nest in every way, physically, emotionally, and in all the dimensions of a marriage relationship, so that they can have that healthy severance, so that they then can be, the second thing, joined oneness to their wife or to their husband. And there needs to be that, that independence and severance, and yet that adhering to, the idea is total dependence on the other. Join. When you look at that word in the Hebrew there, that word join there literally indicates sort of to, to be glued or to be welded together. That's the idea. That there's complete and total dependence. That person, you now join yourself to, it says, your husband or your wife. You become independent of prior and past relationships. And you now become completely dependent upon that person in such a way whereby you and that person become one flesh, one joined and shared life. In other words, God's design for marriage is that person now becomes your number one priority. See, the the husband-wife relationship scripturally is more sacred than the parent-child relationship, whereby you indicate by your actions, your attitudes, your commitment, and the way that you live out your life that this person at the moment of marriage now takes top priority in my life. You choose that person And you, therefore, elevate that person above everybody else. You know, I love if you just think about the reality, and I've heard this illustration before, and it's a very fitting illustration, if you just think about a marriage ceremony. Think about what happens in a marriage ceremony. Here I am standing here up front. You have a husband waiting here for his bride. Okay? And what happens? She starts coming from the back of the room and down the aisle, walking towards her husband. Now, think about the way that we see guests in a marriage ceremony. Usually you have right up in the front like the immediate mother and father, the closest, deepest bond in relationships. And then maybe you have the siblings and your grandparents and you have the cousins and the other relatives. And then as you work your way back, you have close friends and then maybe work associates. But those who are closest relationally and emotionally are the closest up towards the front. And here's this husband now waiting for his wife. And as she comes down the aisle, what does she do? One by one. All those people who had priority over this guy that she's joining herself to, one by one she starts walking past every one of them and creating space between them and the husband that she's joining herself to completely as her top priority. And she walks past the friends because the friends aren't as important as the husband anymore. And she then walks past the relatives and the cousins, important as family is, she walks past all them. She walks past the grandparents, and ultimately, she even walks past mom and dad and is joined together with the husband, and very symbolically indicates this person is now more important in my life, and they must be, than every other relationship that exists. And if forced to choose, I will choose my spouse over every other person in my life. That's God's design, that's God's intention. You know, the greatest gift that you can give to your children if you are married is to demonstrate to them by action my top priority, my first commitment is to your, to my to my husband or my first commitment is is to my wife and even to indicate that to your children. Trust me, that will send tremendous stability to them and it will teach them how to have a good and a healthy marriage relationship. Don't ever allow anything. You need to draw a circle around your marriage invisibly whereby you at a certain point do not allow anybody to have access into that relationship because that is the numero uno most important person in your life. That's God's design. That you would be glued and joined together, it says here, where those two literally become one flesh. The idea there, again, is is completely shared life. That you would become one flesh physically, and of course that that indicates the reality of, of intimacy, Ultimately, the one flesh experience is manifest in its greatest fulfillment, what? in, in the bearing of children? Because 23 of, of my chromosomes and 23 of her chromosomes, as we come together as one flesh and in physical intimacy, and we produce out of two, we produce one. One, one new created physical thing out of two things. The two become one flesh. that's the greatest fulfillment. But it is interesting, please take note when you study the scriptures, the marriage relationship, Old Testament and New Testament, that the term that God always uses to describe the marriage relationship is that term, one flesh, referring to the physical connection of a husband and a wife. Now, to me, that is insightful because think about it. It almost sounds more like attractive and and romantic and mystical and and loving to say lot i mean why doesn't god say and the two shall become one soul or the two shall become one mind or the two shall become let's get spiritual the two shall become one spirit now i think those other things kind of happen would you agree if you're if you're married i think we do become one body soul and spirit but it's very interesting That whenever the Spirit of God speaks about the marriage relationship, even Jesus himself, he says, the two shall become one flesh. We're returning to the physical union, the sexual experience and expression that God intended and designed for the marriage relationship. And God says, and then when that one fleshness is broken, God says, the the marriage has been broken at that point. But again, we're on the other side of the fall. Sin has not entered into the picture, and what's God creating? sex, as a gift and an intended thing to be expressed and experienced in a marital relationship. I bring that up for this reason. A sexual experience with your spouse is a fundamental aspect of your marital relationship. God communicates the marriage relationship by the consummation of the one-fleshness of a husband and wife. Anything outside of the marriage relationship, it is wrong. Notice, it says, the man and his wife became one-flesh, and they were naked and not ashamed. It doesn't say the man and his girlfriend. It doesn't say the man and his fiancée. But in the marriage relationship, God is given the sexual experience, and not just for procreation, but the scriptures teach for fulfillment and recreation and that there would be a bonding, because you know as well as I do, there's a tremendous bonding that happens in the sexual experience. Paul's gonna later say in the New Testament, you know, don't you realize that if you join yourself to Harlot, you become one. And he who sins sin, sexually sins against his own body. There's something mystical, there's something deep and tremendously powerful that happens when a man and a woman In a marriage relationship, being free to experience what God intended them to experience, come together in the sexual expression that bonds and welds their life together. And it's something God intended by design. And and it's something that is essential. Listen, I more than once have sat down with people having tremendous marital problems and after a very short conversation come to discover very quickly that they, for whatever reasons and excuses and issues, have forsaken sexual intimacy, and it has a very detrimental and destructive effect upon their marriage. It is an important part of the marriage experience. I understand that there can be things that affect things. and I'm not trying to be ungracious, but I want you to understand that there's nothing unsacred or unspoken. It is something God intended by design. By the same token, that's why it's so damaging And people have sex outside of marriage. That's why it's so destructive. Because what God intended to be this deep, bonding, intimate thing. To make a husband and a wife be so committed to one another. Because they've experienced something so deep and mystical. that It's it's much more than the physical act, sexual expression. You know that. We we recognize that. There's times where I sit with a a boyfriend or a girlfriend. and and, And they're not even married yet. Or, or they're even engaged and, and they're fighting like cats and dogs, act like they hate each other. And, you, and, and I mean, literally, and you're thinking to yourself, this does not make sense. You are miserable. You act like you hate this person. You're not married to him. What, what are you doing? Are you just, I mean, are you a, are you a, a martyr? Are you mad? Why, why would you continue to stay so miserable? And I've looked at him and I said, you're sleeping together, aren't you? And because you're sleeping together, you have built a bond in a very deep, mystical way whereby you don't even like each other, but you have bonded yourself together in a way outside of God's design that now has you in a real pickle. I say that just to say that's why it's so destructive to have premarital sex. And that also is a tremendous indication to us as a husband and wife that one of the greatest things you can do to build a bond in your marriage is to be sexually intimate with your spouse. Because it builds a tremendous bond. It builds a level of commitment by God's design that was intended to be there. The two shall become one flesh, and verse 25 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, I don't think that just flat out refers to them being physically. I I think there's truth to that, that there's no shame in the marriage relationship. Again, outside of the marriage relationship, there is a sense of shame. And that's why when people are intimate outside of the marriage relationship, when they're physically intimate with another person, they feel shameful and embarrassed, and there's a sense of guilt and shame. And and in a marriage relationship, it doesn't need to be that. There's nothing shameful. There should be no guilt. There should be no awkwardness. Now, it's a shame when, if we've had prior experiences to the marriage relationship where we've been sexually intimate in sin, how that can have a detrimental effect upon our minds. But in the marriage relationship, it's honorable. It's God's design. It's God's plan. It's intention to be expressed. The man and his wife, it says, they were naked and they weren't ashamed. That they were. The idea, again, is not just, I think, physically they could walk around without clothes on in front of one another. There, there was also an innocence. Again, sin hadn't entered the picture yet. There was an innocence between them. There was no sense of, of shame. And, and I think that naked and unashamed can also apply in a very specific way to even beyond just the physical nakedness, just the emotional, relational experience that we can have as a husband and wife. I like to think of it that way, that God gives to you the opportunity to have one person in your life that you can be completely naked and you don't have to be ashamed. You know, somebody who you can be completely yourself with, all your spots, all your wrinkles all the flaws in your personality, your insecurities, your idiosyncrasies, everything about you, the things that you would be ashamed of if everybody else in this room knew about. Because you're normal. And, and you have weaknesses. And, we all, and, and God gives you one person. How wonderful. I, mean, I can't think of something. God gives you one person that you can just be completely naked with. That you can just be yourself. You don't have to try and impress them. You don't have to try and be something that you're not. You don't have to do the things that we do in the world all day long because it'd be awkward and embarrassing and shameful if everybody knew everything about us, right? And God gives you one human being to be able to just be yourself with. Who you can be yourself with 24-7 and you don't have to be ashamed. How wonderful is that? But that's why it's really important you better make sure you pick the right one. (laughs) Because one of the gifts that we can give to each other in marriage, hear me in this, is that we should allow our spouse to be naked and we should never make them feel ashamed. God forbid that we put expectations on our spouse or we make them feel awkward and embarrassed for who they are and their weaknesses and, and we always hyper-emphasize their weaknesses and all those kind of things rather than just letting them be who they are and loving them unconditionally and saying, you know what, listen, you, you don't have to impress me. I love you just like you are. I love you just like you are physically. I love you just like you are emotionally. I love you just like you are socially and spiritually. I, I, I I love you just like you are. And you don't have to impress me and you don't have to feel ashamed in front of me. I love you for who God made you and I love you with those weaknesses and I know I have my own weaknesses and it's a gift that you give to me and I give it back in return to you. That's God's wonderful, gorgeous design. And see, the marriage relationship, it's so critical, so, so critical that we recognize God's plan and design for all these things because what does Ephesians 5 say? Ephesians 5 tells us that there's a great mystery between the picture of a husband and wife because it portrays Christ in the church. And as we live out our marriage relationships in all the ways God intended us to live out our marriage relationships, we become one of the greatest windows to what God's plan and intention is for Jesus, who's a gentle, loving bridegroom, and the church who's supposed to be the bride of Christ. And our marriage is not just about personal fulfillment. It's also about public reflection of the world around us, to our kids understanding what marriage is supposed to be as they grow up, and to the world because they see a picture of Christ and the church. You know What great thing has God laid before us? Again, is it what we see in the world? Is it what the world's teaching us? No. But we need to be scripturally accurate. What was God's design for marriage? This is a great text you know one night doesn't allow the opportunity to just soak and sink in the realities of lord how does that apply for me as a husband how does that apply for me as a wife or somebody who's still single how does that apply for me to be responsive to the things that you're showing me let's stand let's close out and pray together father thank you for tonight and just the time to study this section of scripture and and lord in some ways We almost feel like as we look at something like this that we're treading on holy ground, Lord, to think that you designed marriage and husbands and wives and every aspect of the marital relationship, which certainly we, Lord, don't even fully grasp. We're still learning. We're still learning what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife. But thank you for giving us the light of your word as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Help us to live out, Lord, by your grace and assistance, what you intend for us as a man and a woman, as a husband and a wife. And we ask for your help in these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Amen.